This is a Momentum Media production. The IFA Show. The stories behind the financial advice headlines with the team from IFA. Hello, hello. Welcome to the IFA podcast. Maya here, the editor for IFA. I have a very special guest joining me today. His name is Matt Van Dyke, and he is the general manager for distribution in Queensland for Premium. Welcome to the show, Matt. How are you doing? Doing very well, Maya. Thanks for having me along. No worries at all. Thanks for making time in your busy schedule to join me today from a not-so-sunny Brisbane today. (laughs) But, uh, Matt, before we sort of get started and uh, get into the nitty-gritty of our conversation today, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you sort of uh, got to where you are at Premium today? Okay, sure. Uh, Look, I've worked in financial services for just a tad over 20 years now. I think like a a lot of good people started off as a commercial teller for one of the banks before moving into an investment advisory role. So working from an investment and advisory capacity for a number of years. And then uh, shortly after I commenced my postgraduate studies, I focused on more distribution roles and trying to reach a wider audience Quite happy to say that I did complete my master's in applied finance, and I specialized there in investment analysis, focusing particularly on how behavioral finance theory affects investment decision-making and outcomes, and also really testing some of the truisms around sustainable investing, what that means for long-term returns for investors. So it's a really great way, I think, in the current role I, I work for and look after a team of consultants, and it's great to be able to try and really benefit people in our community by providing better financial outcomes, better investment outcomes to advisors and their brokers and people that deal with them and uh, make sure that people can be better off as a result for dealing with all those parties. Mm. So two decades in the financial services space, you've certainly seen a lot. So sort of go down in this space. We've had a a lot of uh, changes, particularly in uh, the financial advice space. Has it been uh, sort of tough on you personally uh, with all the, you know, changes in regulation and sort of making that move throughout, uh, you said, the banks and then uh, to premium where you are today? Yeah, look, great question. I think really any sort of, you know, personally speaking, if I'm not challenged by something, then it's probably not something that I'll find myself doing. And my view on change has always been that I'm probably more worried about things staying the same rather than things actually changing. One of the, the really great things that I've been able to observe, particularly over probably more the last five to 10 years, has been the improvement through a lot of advice networks on what good investment management really ought to look like. And I think part of that's come certainly with the the lifting of the education standards that's been rolling through, but also probably the the work that people like, uh, you know, ourselves, our peers, competitors have been doing to really try and help educate advisors on what they can do to deliver you know, the right risk return outcomes and the right portfolios to meet clients' needs. So it's actually been great to have been a part of the journey and hopefully provide a little bit of influence along the way. Mm, Definitely. And now, Matt, Premium has undertaken research on the high net worth investor over the last few years and has a large client base of advice firms that service this investor segment. Can you share uh, some of the key insights you've discovered in this research? Yeah, so this is going to be um, an interesting one to sort of choose where to start. We've been sponsoring this research now. We're in our fourth year. We've done it for the last three years in conjunction with Investment Trends. 
And what we've seen is that the high net worth investor segment in Australia has really continued to grow over time. And they now account for somewhere north, and the number will will change, I think, depending on, on who you look at, but somewhere north of about $3 trillion in actual investable assets. And that's excluding superannuation and property. So it's a really important segment of the advice industry. And we're seeing more and more advice groups start to look at how do we focus on this and, and meet the needs? And what have we got to do differently for this particular client segment. Part of the reason behind that is that there are very clear segments in what we would call high net worth investors. And it starts for when you you see people grow out of what I would call the, the mass affluence segment and you look at the emerging high net worth that have about one to $5 million worth of assets. Now they've often sort of accumulated those assets and those investments is very different to where you would see the more established sort of private client type of, of investor right through to you know significant high net worth investors of $7,100 million plus worth of investable assets. And so for a firm, it's it's really about deciding how do we meet those needs and what are understanding really what their unmet needs are. Look, I don't get out much anymore, so I find some really interesting stats out of this, but there's around a bit over half of high net worth investors that really say they are in need of, of quality advice and they're quite open to that. But it's a matter of firms really understanding where they differ to maybe, if I can call it a a retail offering from a a legislative perspective and and what that looks like and making sure that, you know, for for owners of firms or senior advisors in firms, if they put their commercial lens on, it's understanding what have we got to be doing about our, you know, what's our strategic competitive advantage and what's our, our client value proposition to really look after this segment. And that's going to come from understanding what they value, what they find important, and what's going to make them seek advice to either confirm or validate some of their investment decisions. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. And uh, from what uh, you're saying there, it seems like it's not your typical approach to advice where you outsource the decision to an advisor. Is that right? You're right. There's... We think there's probably about sort of three key segments that come through. You will actually get a group that you know, quite rightly we would call the delegator. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be the people that either are, are genuinely not interested, they understand that their skills and talents lay elsewhere around portfolio management, and they're going to be looking to partner with someone on a very deep and rich level to look after that portfolio. That accounts for somewhere between about a fifth to a quarter of all high net worth investors. So it's not an insignificant number. On the opposite end of the scale, you've got people who often won't spend a lot of time with advisors and often because they won't perhaps understand where they can help. And I'll talk about the middle segment next. Mm-hmm. We've got to remember that for a lot of high net worth investors, the average age is a, a 60, I believe 60 or 61 is the average age of someone who would be considered a high net worth investor. But that number's actually coming down. And that's often driven particularly through the transfer of wealth between generations as it's coming down now from sort of the, the boomers to either the Xs, the Ys, and the millennials. Mm. That segment that often won't talk to an advisor just yet, if we look at that average age, we've got to remember that a lot of these clients are some of the most investment savvy that they've ever been. They've taken part in some of the big IPOs and floats. They've held direct shares. They've held multiple properties. They've often run their own businesses. So it's they're often not without a fair degree of savviness and understanding, but often some of the more detailed nuances, education, understanding on, on how they can really create a, a better or more risk return aligned portfolio isn't something they do, but they'll stick to their knitting and, and what they're comfortable with. 
you do see a large part of the segment, which is about 40 to 50% of what we call our validators. Mm. And it's this segment that's really interesting and that you can add a lot of value to, particularly because they may be comfortable making some investment decisions themselves, and particularly while they've got the capacity to do so. Obviously, as you've got aging, an aging population and people holding a lot of wealth and age, there are capacity issues that come in, certainly from not only the ability to make decisions from an investment perspective, but also then uh, whether they've got the capacity to act as either a trustee or a director of a company. But it's these validators that are really looking to partner with advisors and firms that can share information, share insights, and give access to opportunities that they might not be able to take off the street. And that might be looking at certain types of assets or asset classes. Certainly, we've seen an uptick in interest in assets like uh, OTC bonds and people trying to capture opportunities where the the size of the the parcel or the time that you may need to remain invested to have a better chance not of collecting the return from that investment is much easier when you've got that larger amount of wealth to consider investing. So the validator segment is a really, really important one for firms who are looking at either who are operating this space now and trying to say, how can we do things better? Or for firms that would like to move into the space to say, how can we cater for not only investment management, where the advisor's used to the client giving them some money to look after, but how can we also cater to the investment administration? How can we provide good reporting that allows people to really make great decisions? I think reporting is often seen as a hygiene issue rather than a great decision-making tool. And that's certainly something the segments after is being able to look at their assets that they might be managing themselves, but be able to work with someone to identify underperforming assets or opportunities that they may have to invest that they wouldn't have normally considered themselves. Mm. And you talked about this segment having unmet advice needs. Can you go into a little bit more detail as to what those particular advice needs are? Oh, absolutely. And look, the number one unmet advice need across every single segment of high net worth investors is around inheritance and estate planning. It's their top unmet advice need. And I was talking just before about the uh, intergenerational wealth transfer, which is a topic I think most of the audience would be uh, reasonably cognizant of and, and, and aware of. And so that's not really surprising. What these investors are really looking for is how can they support and educate their children to manage the wealth when they're going to inherit it? And that's a really challenging one. I think one of the, if I look at my social circles and people ask me sort of, what do I do or how do I do it? I have to remind them that there's a lot of knowledge that you know my team have, we can take and help advisors, what advisors have. I think one of the greatest thing advisors can often forget is that their expertise and what they're able to do every day is because they've done this often for a very long time. And they can sometimes forget that it's something that is not a, it's not a, a skill that people are born with. They need to be taught and inherited. And there's a lot of value that they can really deliver their clients by sharing some of that knowledge that's in place. And so being able to bring the family together And it can start from a very, very early age. I often like to give the example of how I run a couple of very simple ETF portfolios for my children that I started when they were quite young. And the idea is to be able to show them the impact of contributions and volatility and the benefits of diversification over a long period. So when they're 18 or 21 or 25, depending on how mean I'm feeling at the time and when we hand the money to them, they've been able to really see and participate and be involved with 
some core financial theories and principles and do it in a tangible and meaningful way. So that's a very simple example, but it's absolutely true as well. And then it becomes even more relevant once you're dealing with larger amounts of wealth, often complex tax structures, entities, and multiple layers that get involved. So that's a really, really big one. Yeah. Uh, the next biggest one is probably no surprise to many, but also strategies to reduce tax. Okay. That's something that's fundamental to a lot of investors. And there's, there's a lot of interesting reasons sort of why that's a important to them. The next one is that, and probably more an important note to make, is that when we look at the emerging high net worth or emerging affluent and the established affluent, they do have slightly different advice needs. The emerging affluent will sort of really have a much greater focus on retirement planning because it's they're often coming from a, a salaried or small business background. So retirement's a very ingrained concept for these investors. And so there's that's going to be a different conversation when you're looking at planning for regular income as opposed to your more traditional high net worth clients where there's going to be more of a focus on uh, protecting and maintaining wealth rather than thinking about wealth from a, an income replacement perspective because they've generally got more than enough money to cover. You know, they've met their needs and it's now their want or it's thinking about how do we avoid the third generation trap problem uh, where you know you can pass money to the second generation, which often understands how it was accumulated and they value it, but often the third generation's never seen the trials and tribulations that the earlier generations have gone through. They don't value or appreciate what it took to get to that position in life as much and, and can often struggle to maintain the family wealth. Mm. And that latter category you mentioned, they're not so worried about retirement planning. They're probably, you know, quite sort of well off and retired already. So <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And and it's really and actually you, you do actually touch on a really good point there, I think, too, because when I think about some of the firms that I'm fortunate enough to work and consult with um, here in Brisbane and my time that I spent in Sydney, a lot of these clients will be thinking about how do we find meaning and purpose in our lives? And that's often going to be through some sort of um, philanthropic or charitable work. And so when I look at the businesses that I think are, you know, great examples of uh, private client management done well, a lot of them will have senior advisors or firm owners um, working with charities and participating on on the boards of um, philanthropic trusts and the like themselves. So there's a lot of commonality then between their clients and what they're thinking about and how they want to participate and give back to their community and what the firm's actually doing themselves. Yeah, definitely. And we've been uh, talking about the wealth transfer. So according to uh, Premium's uh, research, Australia's wealthiest investors have around $2.8 trillion in investable assets. And with the intergenerational wealth transfer likely to accelerate over the next decade, that's a significant sum of money to potentially sort of shift from that one generation to the next. So how can advisors support this wealth transfer? It's an incredible number. It's something if you talk trillions, you know, most people How can't. Sort of, no, How many it's, zeros it's is that? <laughs> and it's actually hard to sort of picture amounts a lot less than that for many, many people. And this is for, you know, for our audience today, certainly for you and I that work in the field, you know, we can think about millions, possibly billions, but you get up to trillions and it's it, it almost becomes an abstract, right? Yeah, exactly. We're expecting about half of that money to go to the children. Wow. And really, and out of that group, a lot of them have already inherited wealth themselves along the way. So the challenge for advisors is that over 50% of those inheriting wealth are already managing an inheritance themselves, and 20% have said that there was never an advisor involved for either party. So there's absolutely an opportunity to capture this market. 
And that then comes back to some of my earlier comments around, you know, can you really articulate what your competitive advantage is and what your client value proposition is? But only 15% of those clients, when we were polling them over the years, said that they intended to continue using the existing advisor of the benefactor. So that's then a real concern that some really good business from an advisor could walk out the door. And if they've got an older client base, that puts them at real risk. I was part of a presentation recently and there was a, a great business consultant looking at how advice businesses were valued. And really, if you know, as soon as a client sort of hits 70, and this, this shouldn't be taken as an ageist comment, but just purely commercially, any client over 70 has a, a high risk premium put on the value that it would contribute to a business uh, as a result of that. And the, the other real problem is this, is I think and looking back at, at my time on the tools, money is often the last great taboo for many people. Mm. When a client talks to an advisor about their balance sheet, their income expenses, they inevitably tell the advisor things that they've never talked to anyone else about, sometimes not even their family about. And so when that wealth is passing from one generation to the next, the existing advisor is genuinely and often the best person to help subsequent generations with managing that money because they know the family so well. And so it's a real shame to think that you might have some great connections and relationships and someone who's perfectly capable of supporting the family on a continuing basis maybe not get a look in. And there are ways that you can address that. When you're looking at, and I think two things maybe to consider, if you're attracting the current investor segment, because a lot of them are going to be in their 60s and 70s and attracting the recipients of the transfer are going to be in their 30s and 40s, you might need to really think about, sorry, there's no might, you really should think about how you're engaging with those two different demographics because the type of advice, the conversations, the way they want to engage is going to be very, very different. And demonstrating the value that your advice can deliver to the older generation, that's going to be a different proposal where it really might be around then supporting the inheritance, the estate planning, providing education for the beneficiaries, tax-effective strategies. And the younger generation... And again, just in case anyone doesn't know this, I'm going to tell everyone right now, if you can't get access to your financial information on your phone, it's frankly weird for anyone 30s, 40s, certainly younger. Uh, And getting beyond simple valuation is a good example. So really thinking about as a business, what's your engagement strategy around digital advice service and finding a way to deliver a personalized approach that's going to be relevant, timely, and not going to bog your business down in minutiae either. And so it is possible to do. And again, if I think about examples of the businesses I believe do it really, really well, again, they not only understand, as I said earlier, that difference between investment management and investment administration and how to provide good information to their clients. They're thinking about how that information then gets provided, what it looks like, and what's the supporting information that's going behind often very, very dry numbers that clients might sort of smile and nod about sometimes, but might not really understand the details as well as they're indicating that they are. Definitely. And that's been a topic that we've sort of been writing a lot about on IFA. Obviously, you know, it presents such a great opportunity, the wealth transfer for advisors, but it is a whole set of sort of different rules. You know, the older generations used to like to sort of come and see their advisor in person, would get all, you know, dressed up for it. It would sort of be an event a day out, whereas the younger ones, we 
don't even like to get on the phone, let alone walk over to someone's office and sit down and do it in person. We're a lot more used to technology, as you were saying. So it is a completely sort of a different game for, for the advisors when approaching the different generations. But um, and Matt, how are platforms catering to the high net worth investor segment? You've talked about the digital experience. What is premium doing there and how else are you using technology to make the needs of this investor segment? Yeah, cool. That's a really interesting question to unpack. I was actually talking to one of my team on a couple of days ago, actually, and the comment that I made at the time was, when I think about what we do and how we do it and, and what makes us different, and apologies if this sounds like more of a shameless plug than it's <laughs> really intended to be, but we've been working in the in the high net worth space and in the complex asset management space for 22 years. Our background was actually not you know, being a master trust or a, or a wrap and sort of adding on different features or functions. We actually started with the hard and difficult assets first. What we then built out was underlying that engine was taking that institutional level of technology and advantage and providing it to advisors no matter what client segment that they were really working with. And by listening to our advisors over the years in terms of what they want and what would help support them, we've built a tool that allows the fans that we've got out there, the people that use us who get to meet us for the first time, get to see how we really do have a difference in terms of what we do, how we do it, depending on how they're investing. And I think one of the the big challenges that I've tried to sort of work on and address over the years is that there was a, a little bit of a mismatch in the steps that many advisors took where as people were often licensed by a business or a group that would own the platform, it was a case of as an advisor, as you're working on your strategy for client, when there was an investment component, you could choose any investment you want as long as it was on this platform. And so that then led a lot of people being trained over the years or it being sort of burnt into them that you choose a platform and then you choose an investment. I'd argue that it's actually the other way around. Platforms are very much around execution and engagement. And so you should be choosing a platform based on what your investment philosophy is, what your guiding principles are, how you're really thinking about investing and the types of assets that you're going to be using for a client because it can make such a, a meaningful and significant difference in the outcome that the client gets, not only from engagement perspective, but what they'll actually uh, you know, pay in terms of whether it's brokerage or the types of assets they can use or how they can literally see everything on one page over time. And, and that's what's really driven Premium's platform is it, it doesn't matter whether someone wants to use us from a custodial investment perspective where we might settle, clear and trade a broader range of assets than any of our competitors in Australia to using our class leading reporting engine. So whether the client's got real property assets in the US, they're running some form of alternative investment out of the, the UK or Europe, as well as you know very vanilla Australian listed securities, managed funds, it can all be run under the one platform. And we can really look at, you know, what does that particular advisor need to meet their clients and getting access to a much more sophisticated breadth of investment opportunities. So again, when you've got clients that have much larger amounts to consider either in terms of parcel size, or they can invest for longer periods because they've got more than enough rainy day money already parked in, in one of their accounts, um, you need to be able to then consider, well, what are investments that give us a true level of great diversification that are going to enhance a portfolio and really work well to protecting, growing and managing that client wealth across multiple generations? 
one of the really cool things I think from a, a personal perspective has been to see also the rise of ESG for consideration. And I'll be very, very clear, ESG is much more nuanced than I think often gets addressed for many. It, it used to be sort of, I think, almost, I hate to say written off, where people would say ESG is about, you know, mining or, uh, you know, very, very sort of, you know, deforestation and, and some of those big headline topics. Mm. And the education's been getting out there more and more and people are understanding that ESG is a very, very personal decision for many investors. So you may have people with strong faith-based backgrounds that would exclude companies that invest or receive material amounts of income from potentially gambling, alcohol or adult entertainment, you know, non-pharmaceutical animal testing. The idea that, you know, mascara and lipstick can be tested on animals, that might be a very, very personal move for someone. When we looked at our research out of ESG, the 80% of high net worth investors actually had a preference for ESG investing. And when we went a little bit further and said, what did that look like? The most predominant one was actually the G. It was that focus on good corporate governance and knowing that if you've got a business that is looking to be a good corporate citizen from a board level down, a lot of the rest will flow from that was part of the idea. So I'd suggest that if, again, anyone in the audience has been sort of mulling over ESG or, or not really considering it, one of the biggest risks that you've got in a business is that your best client will likely be talking to people just like them who would also be great clients of your business if you're not having that ESG conversation at part and just to at least see if there's any interest, there may not be. Yeah. Not having the conversation and your client hears about someone who is and it's of interest for them and it's not you, it mm-hmm. might be a bit too late to have that conversation. The other part to tie into the earlier uh, aspects of our chat today as well, Maya, is that when we're looking at that wealth transfer effect, ESG is a much, much higher area of interest on the radar of 20, 30, and 40-something-year-old clients as well. So if you're looking to, again, stop that money from walking out the door, it's a conversation that needs to start happening today and and not in the future before it becomes too late. Yeah, definitely. The millennials and the younger generations are certainly sort of more interested in the ESG space. And I think we saw just this week as well that ASIC sort of came out and stressed that, you know, ESG is not a trend uh, it's time for for companies to get on board. So we're seeing a lot more movement uh, in that space as well. So yeah. for the investment nerds out there, there's some really interesting research as well to be had on applying concepts of uh, you know basic financial theory around where sustainable investing should deliver superior returns. It can be challenged, it can be still tested. I think it's worth reading, but you can support some of this decision making with good financial theory as well. So important one to factor in. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. It's been a pleasure. My thanks for giving me the opportunity to to speak. I, I hope the audience found it to be of value. Yeah, no worries. That was certainly an insightful chat for me and I do hope uh, the audience enjoyed it as well. Thanks for tuning in today and I'll catch you again next week. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. 